Hi, everybody. This is Tom Salemi of Device Talks. Welcome to the Abbott Talks podcast. Over the past few years, the world has come to recognize Abbott as a company dedicated to helping people live happier and healthier lives. In this podcast series, we'll talk with the healthcare leaders, the executives, and the engineers who are working every day to develop new technologies to help people live their best lives. I know you'll enjoy this episode of the Abbott Talks podcast. Hi, everybody. This is Tom Salemi. Welcome to the Abbott Talks podcast. I'm so excited to bring you this new podcast from Device Talks. We have lots of stories to tell from Abbott. The world, as I said in the intro, has come to know Abbott over the last couple of years as it stepped up with diagnostics and other tools to battle the pandemic. We've been longtime admirers of Abbott, and it's going to be great to bring their stories to this podcast. For those who aren't familiar with Device Talks, we put on podcasts and other digital media for medical device companies. We also put on events, Device Talks Boston and Device Talks West. So uh, very, very glad to bring Abbott Talks to our portfolio of podcasts. The best way to enjoy Abbott Talks will be to subscribe to the Device Talks Podcast Network. When you do that, you'll receive all of Device Talks podcasts, including Abbott Talks. So they'll all be sent directly to your listening device. So make sure before you uh, leave your phone, before you uh, finish listening, to like, follow, and or subscribe to the Device Talks Podcast Network on any podcast application you're listening to this podcast to. That includes Google, Spotify, Amazon, Apple, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, again, you won't miss an episode of Abbott Talks that way. You can also find this in future Abbott Talks episodes at devicetalks.com. So uh, each episode, as I said, will explore a specific uh, uh, focus of Abbott. And today we're going to be talking with uh, Dr. Christopher Pekowski. He's Divisional Vice President and Chief Medical Officer of Electrophysiology. And Dr. Philip Adamson, he is Divisional Vice President and Chief Medical Officer of Heart Failure. And together, they uh, just contributed to a fascinating conversation about the work that Abbott is doing in uh, cardiac technology. We talked, of course, about AFib. We talked about HeartMate. Covered a lot of ground. Talked about CardioMems. So uh, this, again, will be sort of a, a, an intro for those who don't know the area. And for those who do, I hope it's an affirmation of uh, of the great stuff that's coming out of Abbott. Really grateful for uh, these two uh, d- gentlemen to uh, take the lead in the Abbott Talks podcast and happy to be able to tell their stories to you. But before we begin the interview, I want to bring in our sponsor. We have sponsors for each episode of our Device Talks podcasts. So uh, this is an opportunity for companies to tell their stories in the same episode in which a larger company like Abbott is telling its story. So each episode will have its own particular sponsor, but now I'd like to bring in the sponsor of this episode, Codings to Go. I had the chance to speak with Andrew Kazoulis, the CEO of Codings to Go. We'll play that interview. We'll learn a little bit about the company now. We'll learn a little more a little bit later in the podcast. So uh, let's hear this interview that I did with Andrew Kazoulis, the CEO of Codings to Go. Andrew, thank you for joining us on the Abbott Talks podcast. Can you tell us about Codings to Go? 
First, let me just say thank you, Tom, for having us on and have this opportunity to share a little bit about what we do. So Coding Sago is a first of its kind company specializing in off-the-shelf coding technologies. And by that, I mean we supply water-based, heat-cured, super lubricious hydrophilic coatings uh, that go on a medical device and become the, the new surface of a medical device that make entering and navigating the human body in a much more lower friction way and a much easier way. Coatings to go has a ISO 1345 2016 certified quality management system. We maintain a master file with the FDA. A lot of companies don't have, you know, these massive R&D budgets. We're an accessible technology that you can go right online and, and buy and have shipped to you direct uh, within 24 to 48 hours. At the end of the day, the whole goal of our technology is to increase positive health outcomes for patients, do less damage, and really empower the doctors to fight the diagnosis and not the device. We'll hear more from Codings to Go a little later in the podcast. If you'd like to find out more now, go to its website, Codings to Go. That's the number two, the numeral two, Codings to Go.com. Now let's launch our debut episode of Abitox. Well, Dr. Phil Adamson and Dr. Christopher Pekofsky, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Tom. Thanks for having us. Thank you for having us. This is our inaugural Abbott Talks podcast, so very excited to have it. Abbott is part of our uh, Device Talks podcast network. In this podcast, we're going to uh, explore uh, some of the challenges that come along with, with heart disease and some of the technologies that Abbott's providing to help patients. But before we get into that, I typically like to uh, understand our guest perspective, their backgrounds a bit, and what businesses they're working with. So, Phil, let's start with you. Tell us a bit about your background. We can maybe discuss if you want how you got into medicine, but what convinced you to join Abbott? I practiced for about 30 years in Oklahoma as a heart failure cardiologist, lived through the process of discovering that we can actually monitor people with heart failure and make their lives better. Uh, prior to about 1995 or 19, early 90s, really, the thought that heart failure was a hopeless disease that couldn't be altered in terms of medical therapies or device therapies uh, was the prevailing thought. And, and so we really had to work through the process of understanding that these patients could get better, that they could respond to medical and device therapies, that they could be monitored remotely, that their lives could be improved, they could stay out of the hospital. All of those things had to be investigated and discovered. And I spent that period of time really working to help patients get their lives back. The discoveries that we made during that time led to certain devices and, and devices on devices and guideline directed device therapies, which is a new concept as well. And the opportunity came to really further that process to guide the direction of investigation, the direction of, of where we will go with new devices. That, that, that opportunity came when I was asked to join at that time, the St. Jude Medical Group, uh, mm -hmm. and uh, became a medical director there from uh, directly from practice. And then uh, after being acquired by Abbott, was asked to be the, the chief medical officer of the heart failure division. So that it all focused and has always focused on how can we make our patients' lives better? How can we keep them from experiencing some of the, some of the horrible disasters that can be associated with heart failure and, and give them a, a hope for the future? That's terrific. 
What was the transition like for you? And uh, I'd like to understand, how was the move to industry? Was it something that surprised you or was there anything that uh, you weren't anticipating? I guess you could characterize the last eight years as an amazing learning experience. I mean, there I've learned about regulatory issues. I've learned about quality issues. I've learned about reimbursement issues, you know, in the United States and abroad. I, I will tell you to understand regulatory and reimbursement concepts in in Europe and all the different countries in Europe and how they interact and how they don't interact. This is done in, in Asia. How heart failure is managed in other countries is remarkably different in, in some places than it is in the United States. Interesting. It has been a, I feel that I've, I've had a, a, like I said, a remarkable education in the last eight years. And, and I didn't quite anticipate the depth of that, but it's been really fun to learn how other people in the world do things that are different, but not, not bad. Interesting. And Christopher, how about you? What, what brought you uh, to the medical device industry? Yeah, so my background as a clinical physician is about 20 years. And I would say the last 15 out of these 20 years, I have been really worked, focused in, in the field of cardiac electrophysiology, treatment of patients, cardiac arrhythmias, cardiac devices. And I would say probably, it's my, it's my personal belief, but probably one of the triggering factors for me to go into that field was the experience that that very close family member of mine started to suffer from atrial fibrillation. It was the early 2000s. And at that time, that there was no established therapy. And, and it had a big impact on this family member of mine in, in terms of quality of life and life environment. And, and by that, it affected me as well. And I would say that was, that was a triggering point for me. And from that time on, I, I went through specialization in, in cardiac electrophysiology. I did clinical research. I, I already was participating in technology development. And in a way, it, it was almost a natural cause when Abbott reached out to me and asked me, do you want to come to us and work with us as uh, chief medical officer in, in electrophysiology? I was like, yeah, that, that makes total sense. And it gives me a big opportunity to have influence on, on technological development that do not only help single patients, but help many patients and, and actually have the capability to transform clinical care. And all of that happened in, in summer 2020 when I, when I joined Abbott. And I must say, Phil was a great help, was, was a helping hand. He introduced me into the fire hole as he <laughs> to, 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 to name it. And, and, you have to, to remember at that time, we were still one business unit. EP and heart failure was one business unit in electrophysiology. Now we, we have split and we had two departments, basically, which makes a lot of sense from all of the aspects that Phil have mentioned, from R&D, from regulatory environment. But still clinically, we are closely connected and, and we talk a lot and, and we work together because we, we see the clinical value of that cooperation for, for the patients that are being treated with our products. Interesting. And so you were already involved somewhat in device development prior to this? Were you involved with clinical trials or were you actually uh, working on the technology side of things and helping to develop new tools? Both. Both. Both? So, yeah, I had close collaboration with medical device industry over my entire clinical career, participated in, in, in animal studies in preclinical trials and clinical trials and had independent research outside of, of the medtech area. But that's why 
the whole environment is kind of familiar, but it's still a very different perspective when you're on the other side of the table. And for me, it also involved the transition from, from me and my family to move from Europe to the United States, which was also a very rewarding experience. <laughs> That's exciting. Well, Phil, let's go back to you. Tell me a bit. I know we had talked previously for our Device Talks weekly podcast. I know you had been worked on the CardioMEMS system, which is deservedly getting a, a lot of attention and, and receiving a lot of recognition. But what are some of the principal products in your division, in your business, that folks would be familiar with? Well, our heart failure division really spans the entirety of heart failure experience. But with CardioMEMS, as you mentioned, which starts with people who have what we call New York Heart Association Class 2 symptoms, minimal symptoms early in their disease. That then helps us understand how to keep them out of the hospital and keep them well. But when if they progress, we can discover that. And that can lead to a longer-term support when the heart becomes weakened. We have a uh, our HeartMate 3 device, which is a left ventricular assist device. And that's a what we call durable mechanical circulatory support. So when a patient's heart gets so weak that it can't perfuse the brain and the kidneys, we can implant this device. And, and not only does it improve quality of life long-term, but it improves survival dramatically. We can, for example, in that population, their life expectancy is around nine months. Currently, wow. we see that uh, application of heartbeat three patients live an average of five years or more. And in fact, the survival with people who receive heartbeat three is now rivaling that of people who receive a transplant. This is a 43 year process of, of discovery that has led to this incredible pump that's very safe and, and, and uh, leads to uh, remarkable survival benefits. And then we have, uh, for those who have an acute problem, so for example, when someone has a a heart attack or other problems that can lead to shock, which means that acutely and, and in a moment, their blood pressure drops and their heart can't support them and, and their mortality risk there is very high. We have uh, our Centromag pump that typically forms the circuit in, in what we call extracorporeal membrane oxygenation. That's so big that we just call it ECMO, ECMO. But for ECMO, it's essentially outside the body. We provide circulation until the heart can recover from the acute event that brought shock into their lives. Again, you can imagine in, in a situation of shock, mortality is very high. And having an ability to provide support, circulation support, we can even provide lung support. And we did that a lot in the ECMO pandemic. At the peak of the ECMO pandemic, we could essentially support the lung circulation. Mm -hmm lung function as well. So, you know, it's really refreshing and, and, and exciting to be a part of, of these three main products in our, in our portfolio in the heart failure division. Wow. Extraordinary stuff. And Christopher, on your side, I mean, this is a space that's, uh, we're seeing a lot of advances in electrophysiology, a lot of, uh, it's a very, I want to say competitive space where there's a lot of new therapies coming out. Talk a bit about your, your portfolio and, and where you see the, the, the space is headed a little bit. Yeah, thanks, Tom, for the question. I would say in Abbott Electrophysiology, our product portfolio rests on three pillars. One pillar is our 3D mapping system, the NZX system. The other pillar is all the, the catheter material that is being used for diagnosis and therapy of heart rhythm abnormalities. And the third one is the software that links both to each other that links the usage of these catheters to the 3D 
mapping system. And I think these three components really make our product portfolio today for our current business, but also for strategic product development for the future. And let me talk a little to these three components in depth. NZX is something that we've introduced about two to three years ago in, in its first version. And, and it is really the home base for physicians who work with our technology to treat their patients. You can think of it in its advanced stages as if it would be the iPhone of the cardiac electrophysiologist. We want to be it as simple to use as an iPhone, as connected as an iPhone, as smart as an iPhone that guides physician to the relevant locations in the heart where the, where the arrhythmias come from and to enable the therapy to be executed effectively. And down that strategy, for instance, we have uh, very recently introduced remote care through the NZX system. And remote care means that physicians are not alone in their uh, EP lab anymore, but they can connect with other physicians with technical field support, which is very far away to help them in procedures, to troubleshoot procedures. And, and we see that as a, as a next level of interventional medicine, where not every coworker needs to be in the same lab. There was something that started in the COVID pandemic, but it's proliferating way beyond that. Talking about the catheter portfolio that we have, it's, it's an impressive catheter portfolio. These are catheters that physicians use to diagnose heart rhythm abnormalities, to understand where they come from, and also to ablate them, to go with this uh, energy to a certain spot, to burn there or deliver other energy types and, and to get rid of the arrhythmia. And just to give an example in numbers, in the United States, there are roughly 400,000 ablation procedures done per year. And in, in these procedures, physicians need, need a variety of different catheter types to understand what's wrong with a patient and to treat them effectively. And we have a really a strong representation in all these segments. Probably the, the most important latest product development is the Tactiflex ablation catheter. We have introduced the Tactiflex ablation catheter outside US. We are currently in advanced discussions with the FDA to make it available for physicians inside the US. It's a catheter that is our latest outcome of advanced technology development. It has a flexible tip. That means the physician has a much easier task to position it to the target site in the heart and, and it stays there stable because of the flexible tip. And it has unique capabilities in ablating the tissue from a safety and from an efficacy perspective. In the IGE trial, we have seen that it reduces the time that physicians need to treat a patient with atrial fibrillation from 160 to less than 120 minutes in a, in a controlled multicenter trial. Wow. That, that was impressive. Yeah. Again, that's something that we are currently working hard to get this in the hand of, of the physicians inside the United States. And inside the United States, we have about 1,000 end-site systems installed, and, and they are all the home for, for these catheters and for, for this new Tactiflex to be used for, for the physicians. And we see a tremendous impact on the clinical field with this, with this development. Last point that I want to make is PFA. At the upcoming HRS conference, we will reveal the details on our PFA program because that is also something which is very hot in everybody's discussion on electrophysiology technology developments. You do have a lot going on. That's amazing. All right. <laughs> You're very, very busy. All right. Now we're going to take a quick break from this conversation to bring in our sponsor, Codings to Go. Once again, I had the opportunity to speak with Andrew Kazoulis. He is CEO of Codings to Go. Andrew, tell me, how does Codings2Go work with medical device companies? 
That's a great question. And this is really where our business model starts to really shine. How we work with companies is self-directed by each company that that wants to work with us. Some companies, they want a lot of information. They do need some coaching. They're in a new area. They have a great device, but they just need a super lubricious coating. But they're not exactly sure how to get the coating on, how it's going to perform, and some of the do's and don'ts of application. And so we do a lot of one-on-one, a lot of integrated work with the engineers, the design, the R&D teams, the chemists. It's self-directed by each company. And Andrew, what does Codings to Go do differently? This is always such an interesting question to answer. And it actually reminds me of a presentation I was at for CEOs. The presenter basically said, you don't have to own the mountain, but own your hill next to the mountain. And that's really what what Codings to go is is here for and here to do. You know, I see a lot of trends in industry where companies are starting to produce their own devices or they're bringing all of their manufacturing in-house. So they're creating devices that will apply the coding and they're they're selling those uh, one-stop shops. Coding to go is on the side of that. It again empowers uh, different companies at different stages and different sizes to have access to these technologies, so they they can not have to go up the mountain in order to get these technologies. They can pit stop at the hill. They can stop by our website, check out what we have to offer and uh, get the best in class, world, world-class technologies. And finally, Andrew, do you have any products or news that you'd like to share with our Abitox listeners? Yes, there is a lot of exciting new stuff at Codings to Go. So we've added a few staff members recently. One in particular, the Biomed Engineering Masters, it's really good at talking to you know some of the other biomed engineers and, and device manufacturers. We also have some cool new products that we're going to be launching. One specifically is a crosslinker that does not need to be mixed with any solvent in order to become water dispersible. It does that very well on its own. And that is going to be used in conjunction with a new NMP-free top coat that has a higher binder to slip ratio. It's still extremely lubricious but it's a little bit better bonding to some of the lower surface energy substrates and also a little bit more durable because the binder you know, ratio is, is a bit higher. So some very exciting stuff coming down the pipeline for Coatings to Go. All right, great. Well, thank you, Coatings to Go, for sponsoring this episode of Abitox. Once again, if you'd like to find out more about Coatings to Go, go to its website, coatings2go.com. That's coatings2go.com. Now let's get back into this episode of Abitox. Let's talk a bit about heart disease. Oddly enough, I think people, lay people, have a sense that this is something that there's a, a solid understanding of, that this is an area that's being treated sufficiently, that obviously it's still a, a significant threat to folks. But it seems to be a disease, I don't know, that people have some comfort with, maybe because they've been aware of it for so long and they feel as if this is something that can be monitored and, and it can be treated. How do you? Phil, maybe you could could speak from your perspective. Where are we in understanding, diagnosing, and treating heart disease? Do people maybe believe that we have more of a solid grasp or understanding of, of what needs to be done than actually is? That's possible. I think one of the things that you may have kind of noticed in the previous conversation here is that there are a lot of aspects of cardiovascular disease that have been siloed into expertise bins. 
And I think that what some people don't quite get is that I'm seeing a cardiologist. Why do I have to see another cardiologist? But that other cardiologist is an electrophysiologist or an interventional cardiologist or an imaging cardiologist or a heart failure cardiologist, all of whom have had special training to deal with the components of heart disease that require sort of an in-depth approach. I think the advancements of technology that we see that really change the perspectives of having heart disease sometimes are misinterpreted or are not understood by by the by the community abbott for example if you look outside our two divisions we have mitra clip in our structural heart division we have triclip which are you know devices that go across the skin and actually fix valve problems inside the heart but those are used in people who have heart failure. And so all of the things that touch heart failure also are touched by mitroclip. And then you have folks who have heart failure and atrial arrhythmias, and the two work together to uh, make the patient feel badly. And so I think it sometimes is hard for people outside this field to understand that the pathophysiology of, of heart disease is not siloed silo it sort of artificially just because we have to have a deep expertise in order to take care of the technologies that we have that can sometimes even cure the disease. I think, you know, Christopher probably will will agree that cardiac ablation was the first time a heart disease was completely cured. You had it when you went into the cath lab, you came out, you didn't have it anymore. Mm. I think we've learned a lot about things that can accompany arrhythmias like Wolf-Parkinson-White syndrome or AV nodal reentrant tachycardia. Those are the things that we can cure with ablation. But those kinds of massive breakthroughs are ones that transcend sort of our artificial silos. And, and, and that, I think, confuses the community sometimes, but is one of the most amazing things, in my mind, that we can bring to the patient. Christopher, let's follow up. Where, where are we in your perception in, in, the, in the treatment of, of heart disease? I would first echo everything that Phil has said. And, and ever since we got to know each other and, and met, I must say we are brothers in arms for that mission. And, and I would also like to quote Phil with one word. He's, he's saying we are, we are living in an era of democratization of healthcare. These are Phil's words. I totally agree on that. And, and to your question, where are we in, in, in heart health and, and treatment of patients with heart disease? We are in a process of democratization. In the past, physicians had their own knowledge and perception, and they lived in silos, as Phil nicely described it. In the future, I think the patients will have much more understanding, which will help them to have influence on judgment and decisions and will improve their access. And that will be certainly cross-silo. It, it will not stay within silos. The two most important developments that, that help in this journey is number one, clinical understanding and science. So Phil has, has talked to this, the interlink between atrial fibrillation and patients with heart failure with reduced ejection fraction with HEFREF. This interlink has nicely been studied up to a point that that we know today that in patients with heart failure with, with an impaired ejection fraction where the heart just pumps too little blood 
if those patients have atrial fibrillation and the atrial fibrillation is treated with catheter ablation, that has an impact, a big impact on the survival of the patients. Patients live longer. Similar connections exist throughout the field of heart health. They, they are probably there in patients with HEF-PEF, with heart failure, with preserved ejection fraction. They are there in, in, in patients with mitral disease. They are there in patients with cardiac resynchronization and device therapy. And science, our physician partners and, and their studies are revealing these linkages. They, they are bringing that into clinical guidelines, and we need to be supportive in, in that part. So that's one big contributor. And the other contributor is technology. It's what we do in our daily work, where we help to build technologies that makes it easier for, for patients to gain knowledge, to have access, to participate in, in, the, in the decision for their healthcare applications and therapies. And one example, at least from my business unit, Phil has, has other examples for, for my business unit, is the app for atrial fibrillation that we have just launched, where patients can track their atrial fibrillation experience, they can monitor themselves through a questionnaire that measures the burden of atrial fibrillation, and they can link those data with other health data acquired through other input sources. That's an example where we not only help physicians, but we directly try to help patients with our technologies. And I, I'm sure Phil, Phil has others. So just focusing on the app for a second. So where is the data coming from for that app? Is this involving a wearing of monitors or is it data that's inputted by the patient themselves when they're feeling one way or the other or, or both? Yep. It's inputted by the patient themselves. So okay. the patient can, can basically record and, and create something like a journal of, of his symptoms, of his feelings, of his experience. And that by itself feeds into the AFEQT, which is like an industry standard oh. to monitor patient symptoms. So it, it outputs scores. And it is something that the patient can share with his physician on the visit when he goes to the physician and that the physician can keep track on. And the app helps to link other biosignals from, from smartwatches like ECG signals, oxygen saturation into the journal. How closely were people tracking their own heart health prior to this? Where was that information going prior to the creation of an app? Was this just something that folks were struggling silently with? They were having trouble climbing stairs or climbing a hill? Uh, how are folks looking at their own heart health before and, and how is that changing? And, and I'll start with Christopher and then we'll go back to Phil. I would say that there is probably, as with every human being, a large variety in how patients look into their heart health. And that's also part of the problem. On one end of the spectrum, you have patients, and we Phil and I know those, they come into your clinic and, and they wrote down for every half an hour over the last seven days, how they felt, what their pulse and their blood pressure has been, and they show it to you and want an analysis. But these are probably more the exceptions to the rule. Yeah. The other end is much more common, and these are patients who do not want to listen so much into their heart health, who neglect it a little bit, are a little bit afraid, do not have access, and therefore oversee signals and symptoms which actually are critical warning signs to tell them, look, you have to talk to a physician, you have to do something. And that feeds directly into the, to the value of monitoring, monitoring biosignals. Great. And Phil, Phil, it's the same question to you. And maybe this is an opportunity to talk about your expanded monitoring capabilities. Well, we've discovered that patients in general with heart disease tend to ignore their symptoms and explain them away. And I saw this in my practice. I mean, it's this, the, the results of our recent survey are not surprising to me. You know, people just write off 
you know, I've gained a little weight, I'm older, I'm, you know, whatever. The less specific symptoms are, are many times ignored to the detriment of the patient. And, you know, when diseases then establish like heart failure, patients were given for the longest time a spring scale to weigh themselves in hopes that we would catch when they would be accumulating fluid mm. and then be able to intervene earlier. What we discovered when we when we actually studied that is that the scales are they are terrible because they 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 actually let the patient kind of get uh, sort of in a false sense of security when the weight's the same and they're still having problems. We discovered that that the problems develop even when the weights don't change. Hmm. So we've had to work through what is it that we can give the patient that is a good reflection of their underlying problem and how can they then are we act on those those signals to make the patient more stable and and stable over time cardiomins is a good example for example we we've learned that the pressures in the lung artery that we measure with cardiomins change about 3 weeks before patients even develop symptoms wow we're now able to understand that those are changing it reflects that that change is real it tells us that there's a problem and it then tells us what we should do about that problem. And then when we intervene and bring those pressures under control, it tells us that we fixed the problem. And so it, it really gives us that superior way to understand the pathophysiology and avert disaster. Now we're moving similar to Christopher's group to provide that information to the patient in an app format. We're actively developing a process so that the patient can be empowered by knowledge of those pressures that then feeds directly into our prescription for what they would do under those circumstances. And, and it extends essentially what the doctor and nurses do when they monitor cardiomins and puts it in the hands of the patient so that the recommendations for changes in therapy can be directly in their hands. And we've done that in an experiment called Laptop HF, a previous trial that we performed with a hemodynamic sensor and found that. Not only did hospitalizations decline, but patients' self-confidence, concepts like cardiac anxiety, understanding their disease, mm -hmm. being able to exercise because they're not afraid to exercise anymore. All of those things combined allow the patient to be empowered and much more confident to, to understand that things aren't going to abruptly change. Because, you know, people with heart failure, for example, they can be walking along doing fine and then in two days be in the hospital and that you know, and they feel like they're going to die. So we can imagine I'm feeling fine. And two days later, I feel like I'm going to die. That That's that's not a way to live a life. Absolutely not. So how, how are they getting the CardioMem sensor implanted? What is it? What is a part of They've already gone through some procedure, obviously. They've got something in their body. The, the sensor that's associated with the CardioMem's heart failure system is really remarkable. It's a it's a microelectromechanical system. I, I say that because it took me a long time to be able to do that and, and not stutter. But it's essentially a system that is empowered by interrogation. So outside the body, an antenna emits radio frequency energy that's caught by the sensor and then gives the pressure information in that local area where the sensor sits. It can be implanted in the pulmonary artery with a minimally invasive process. It's permanently implanted and lasts for the life of the patient. Wow. It doesn't have to be replaced. There's no battery required. There's no lead that can break. And so the patient then can upload that information directly from their home. It takes about two minutes to do that. And then that's placed in an information system in a trend analysis. So doctors and nurses can look at that and say, okay, hey, the pressures are changing. Let's change the therapy and avert the problem. To extend on that, what we're developing is not available yet, but what we're developing in the field will be a very 
big breakthrough for our patients is to now take that information and make it understandable in the context of the prescription changes that would be made for the conditions that might be developing. So if a patient's pressures are increasing, the pressure information would go to the patient that your pressures are increasing. And Dr. Adamson wants you to take this amount of diuretic today. And then it brings it back down and it alters the prescription back down. So the patient can now be involved in that process. Wow, that would be amazing. Well, let's go over to you again, Christopher, just to begin looking forward a bit. Where are the opportunities for innovation? We've talked about the app and, and some of the other areas where you're looking, but it had been mentioned before that for you're able to help a lot of patients with atrial fibrillation with, through electrophysiology. Where do you need to make improvements? Where will the innovative ideas come from? What problems are you trying to solve? Yeah, I think the biggest challenge that we are trying to solve is to improve access for patients globally to this kind of treatment. In the United States, we have about 7 million patients suffering from atrial fibrillation, globally more than 30 million. And we have incrementally learned how beneficial ablation therapy for these patients can be to improve their symptoms, but even to save lives, to improve their, their survival. The challenge is that societies do not have enough capacities, trained physicians, and healthcare resources to treat all the patients who could potentially benefit from that therapy. Again, in, in the United States, 7 million patients with atrial fibrillation, a little bit more than 3,000 electrophysiologists. You, you see the mismatch. We have procedures that, depending on the clinical skill set and the experience of the physician, can vary between 90 minutes and four hours for the same type of patient wow. for the same arrhythmia. The same applies for complication risk. The same applies for outcome efficacy. And I think our, our main goal in, in, in our current technology development is to make that better. Bring procedure times down, standardize complication risk, minimize complication risk, and improve outcome regardless of the expert level of the electrophysiologist who's treating that respective patient. And one big technological development that has been done under that legacy is our PFA program. This is our technology. You've probably heard about PFA. Everybody's talking about it and, and competitors have released first-generation products, but we see significant gaps. We see significant unmet needs. And that's the reason why we have been a little slower, but I would say a bit deeper in our product development and deliberately build a second generation device of which we believe that it will close many of those gaps that I have just mentioned for the treatment of patients with atrial fibrillation. We are anticipating a technology that physicians globally can use within a time frame of 30-minute procedures where patients do not need to be in general anesthesia, but analogous sedation, which delivers a defined outcome in therapy and in efficacy at a minimal complication risk and where patients can go home basically at the same day of the procedure. This is our goal. And that's what we do to help to, to treat patients with, with these arrhythmias better. So that, that allows interventionalists to see more patients per day. You, you're basically, that's how you're making up for that shortfall. Is that the yeah. benefit of, of PFA? I'm understanding that correctly. 
how physicians in hospitals adopted, how healthcare systems adopted, we mm. cannot even predict and we have no influence on, on that. There are various ways you can think about it. There's, there's this first analogy where you'd say physicians can treat more patients in a given time frame. But you can think that maybe healthcare systems will find very different models to provide such healthcare to patients. Think about how ophthalmologists have transformed the care for glaucoma patients. Just think about this analogy and, and imagine that this would be possible with atrial fibrillation. Again, that's not in our hand. We are building the technology to enable how it's being used. Others have to determine and, and to collaborate on that. Just curious, is electrophysiology, does it allow itself for... Can it be done remotely someday if you're working with imaging and you're working with a with a tool? Do you need to be in the room while you're doing it or can you be 3,000 miles away? That's an excellent question. And um, someone still needs to treat the patient and to introduce the devices. Sure. But, but who else needs to be there is to be determined. And the direction you're thinking in is exactly the direction we are thinking in and that I was pointing to when I talked about the remote capabilities of our 3D mapping technology. Mm -hmm. Wow, that's exciting. Phil, so we'll, we'll give you the last word on, on where you're headed. I mean, I, I would imagine that you mentioned the LVAD, your, your HeartMate 3 is performing as well as, as transplants in, in some cases. Obviously, there's a shortage of transplants. Are you, and I don't mean to direct you towards a specific answer, but where do you see opportunities? I imagine the future for HeartMate series is enormous, but where else are you seeing opportunities for your, for your division? I think the most important thing that we see is, is a concept of implementation, the implementation science that takes the technologies that we have developed and actually gets them to the patients that have an indication and can benefit from them is where we see one of the most important pieces of contribution we can bring. And I think if you think about cardiovascular disease in general as a spectrum that goes from people who don't have problems with their heart all the way to people whose hearts have failed so much so that they're about to die from that, that problem. It is a progressive process. And at each piece of the progression, there are opportunities to implement the technologies that we have to prevent that progression or to at least slow that progression. That goes from identification of a problem that may be asymptomatic, but leads significant risk to the patient, all the way to identified problems that need management over time I think one of the most important things we can do as this disease progresses is to more objectively identify where patients are in that spectrum. For example, when patients progress from being walking around with heart failure to now what we call stage D or refractory heart failure, or we also call it advanced heart failure, where now perfusion to the organs is really being, being challenged, patients are very high risk. But doctors have a hard time identifying when that happens. And so we think there's probably 50,000 people in this country who could benefit from an advanced therapy like HeartMate 3, and yet they go unnoticed until they die. And so it's imperative for us to now learn how to implement the technologies that we bring to help these patients and make it easier for doctors to, and nurses and, and patients to recognize where they are in that spectrum. Fantastic. Well, there's a lot going on. I've taken a lot of your time. I'm sure I could take a lot more, but uh, I think this is a great time to end uh, our interview. Uh, thank you both for joining us on uh, on the podcast. Thanks, Tom. All right, well, that is a wrap. Thanks so much for joining us on the debut episode of Abbott Talks. Very excited to have Abbott Talks as part of our Device Talks podcast network. 
Once again, make sure you subscribe to the Device Talks Podcast Network so you don't miss a future episode of Abbott Talks and our other great podcasts. And uh, please do share this episode on social media. And when you do, I would love it if you'd connect with me, Tom Salemi, S-A-L-E-M-I. Please connect with me, connect with Device Talks. Of course, connect with Abbott. We'd all love to be part of that conversation. We're already working on our next episode of the Abbott Talks podcast. So make sure you stay tuned, subscribe, and be ready for another great episode of the Abbott Talks podcast. Thanks, everybody, for joining us. Have a great day. 